Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman. A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For nearly 400 years, the Comanche tribe controlled the southern plains of America. Even as Europeans arrived on the scene with guns and middle armor, the Comanches held them off with nothing but horses, arrows, lances, and buffalo hide shields. In the 18th century, the Comanches stopped the Spanish from driving north from Mexico and halted French expansion westward from Louisiana. In the 19th century, they stymied the development of the new country by engaging in a 40-year war with the Texas Rangers and the U.S. military. It wasn't until the latter part of that century that the Comanches finally laid down their arms. How did they create a resistance so fierce and long-lasting? Well, my guest today explores that question in his book, Empire of the Summer Moon, Quana Parker and the Rise Involved the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American history. His name is Sam Gwynn, and we begin our discussion by explaining where the Comanches were from originally and how their introduction to the horse radically changed their culture and kickstarted the precipitous rise to power. Sam then explains how the Comanches shifted from a hunting culture to a warrior culture and how their warrior culture was very similar to that of the ancient Spartans. We then discussed the event that began the decline of the Comanches, the kidnapping of a Texan girl named Cynthia Ann Parker. Sam explains how she went on to become the mother of the last great war chief of the Comanches, Quana, why Quana ultimately decided to surrender to the military, and the interesting path his life took afterward. It was a fascinating story about an oft-overlooked part of American history. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Comanches. Sam joins me now via Skype. Sam Gwynn, welcome to the show. Uh, it's good to be talking to you. So you're the author of the book, Empire of the Summer Moon, Quana Parker and the Rise and Fall of the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American history. I grew up in Oklahoma. I live in Oklahoma. And you know you have to do Oklahoma history, but they always talk about just the five civilized tribes, which is an interesting history. The Comanches get like a passing and the story is just phenomenal. It's, it's kind of what it's true in Texas too. There's a lot of I mean, they just blow by this. They certainly did. My, my daughter was in high school you know, 10 years ago here. They, they just blew right by it. They never stopped. <laughs> well, why is that? Why do, does the history of the Comanches get overlooked or blown by in history classes? I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a really good question. The, you know, the, the plains are the high plains. The Comanche plains are the last part of America to be settled, of course. You know, the East settles and the West settles, and then you've got this thing sitting out here that is really the uh, the, the plains extending down from the Northern Plains that were controlled by the Sioux through the Central Cheyennes and Arapahoes and then Comanches. And uh, you had this, this uh, very uncivilized, shall we say, middle that took a very long time to settle. And on some level, I think that it may be because they're just – because of that fact, there just wasn't anything out here, really. I mean, this was this was a frontier, and because it was a frontier, you didn't. It wasn't crawling with our reporters necessarily, and it just it just never had the play. And it was a even something like the Red River War, which is an extremely significant sort of moment in American history. It was kind of you know the end of the frontier, and the frontier ended here in Texas. It didn't end in California. It ended here. These things didn't get covered very well. They didn't get written about that well, and. I don't know. I mean, it's been a privilege uh, and an honor for me to be able to restore it in some way, certainly here in Texas, because it wasn't that 
the Comanche period here in Texas was not really part of the conversation. And, and so what led you down that path? Did you come across a story or was it your, you know, your daughter, you know, going through Texas history in high school and like Comanches sort of got a, a, a quick pass. I mean, was, the, did you come across something that said, I, there's, there's a bigger story here that I need to write about and research? Yeah. So it, it, it is all related to me, the Connecticut Yankee, moving to Texas and having absolutely no clue about the history here and kind of going around, walking around and saying, oh, wow, look at that. Gee, I never, I never knew that. Really? That's, I mean, this is, you know, the, the idiot Easterner who doesn't know any better. I mean, you know, that's who I was. And I thought, this is just incredibly cool. And I went on in the high plains and then I heard about the, you know, these nomadic tribes that lived out there and this whole kind of world that I had never known about, I've never even heard about. And so living here, so so what made me write it was moving to Texas, where which I did 26 years ago, and I'm still here. I, I came here, I, yeah, kind of was I was just kind of on the circuit as a, you know, I was a bureau chief for Time Magazine. I'd been in L.A., Los Angeles for Time Magazine, and and Detroit and Washington and New York, and this was another stop on the way, you know. And I mean, it was like okay, but I got here, and it's, I just started hearing. First of all, you start hearing things. Because Texas is really close to its frontier. And I mean, when I grew up in the East Coast, the whatever Native Americans had been around when the white man arrived had been pretty much killed off, at least in, in, in large numbers by disease mostly, but also by weapons and bullets and things like that. And, and this, the, the subjugation of the Indians had happened hundreds of years before my forebears ever got off the boat. In Texas, that wasn't true. The history was, it was right here. It was just in your face. You're from Oklahoma. You know this. Right. This is immediate. It's you, you know, the, the last of the Indians did not surrender here until 1875. And there was a lot of jostling on and off the res that went on into the 20th century. And I would just hear these stories. And these were, you know, stories that seemed like they were kind of almost current day. It was a very different take on it. But yeah, it was all, it was all, was all where I was. And this this incredible sense of the land in particular, my a love affair that I've had with the, the land west of, uh, or in, the, in West Texas, and just this incredible history that happened down here. Yeah. So let's talk about the Comanches because, like I said, I didn't know much about this tribe. I think when we talk about Native Americans, particularly here in Oklahoma, like I said, you talk about the Cherokees, the Choctaws, the, the Chickasaws, or you talk, if you're in the East Coast, you're talking about the Iroquois. The Comanches don't get much they don't get talked about, but like they're a fascinating, fascinating culture. They were primarily in Texas, West Texas, Southern, Southwest Oklahoma, and went into New Mexico, but they weren't originally from there, which I didn't know. Where were they from originally? So the, the origin of the tribe is, uh, I mean, there's not, there's a, uh, you sort of put this together as best you can, or rather the people who were there at the time put this together as best as you can. As far as we know, they were originally a Shoshone language group tribe, uh, and they were in the Wind River Mountains, or basically the foothills of the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming. And this would be now going back prior to the 18th century. And from, from what we know, they were back then, this was before the Spanish horses arrived and were, and were distributed throughout the plains. This was, they were, they didn't have horses. They were a foot-bound band of nomadic hunter-gatherers. And they they were, as far as we know, a tribe that was not militarily powerful. And one of the reasons that is surmised is because their hunting grounds were not the rich hunting grounds of the buffalo or bison plains, but they were, you know, they were, they were less, less good hunting grounds. And so you had this amazing thing that happened in history, and it happened away from the eyes of white men. And again, you ask, like, why do people know these things? Well, this little, this thing you can see in flashes, or, or rather the Spanish and the French could see it in flashes. But suddenly, you know, the, well, what happens is the, the Spanish arrive in the New World right after 1492, after Columbus, and the Spanish arrive in the New World, and, and they bring horses with them, and with them comes this incredible technology of horses that's thousands of years old, that's very specific, and the Spanish are really good at it, and they bring these little horses, Mustangs that are really well adapted to the arid areas in the West, and they were very concerned initially about letting the technology out, right? They didn't want to let it out because they knew what might happen. Well, it got out. And uh, uh, without going into all of the details, basically the Native Americans on the, on the plains, in the American plains, North American plains, got hold of the horse. And 
the tribe that was by far the best at this were the Comanches. They were, for some reason, nobody really, nobody still understands what there was about them that understood it, the horse in terms of breaking, breeding, you know, whatever it was, stealing, selling, racing, hunting with fighting, whatever. They were better than anybody else at it. And, and endowed with this new power, this phenomenal technology of the horse and, and mastery of it, starting in the, uh, in the 17th century, aided by such things as the Great Horse Dispersal, which is when the Indians were, Spanish were driven out of New Mexico briefly and 20,000 horses got out. And with the horse, Comanche with horses now, now they start to move south from those Wind River Mountains, which is where I said they were in Wyoming, right? They're going to move south. They're going to challenge everybody and anything in front of them. And what they're going to challenge for is the greatest food source on the plains, which is uh, which is the buffalo who are essentially in the south, the southern plains. I mean, there were buffalo in the northern plains, but nowhere near the numbers. So the new power, the new great plains power is going to do what you think they would do. And then they move south and they migrate. And that is when essentially they, they enter this. They, they kind of enter history as they start to migrate south. And this is, so they, they became even more adept hunters because they were able to migrate more quickly with the buffalo. It allowed, it gave them an advantage in hunting buffalo as well because they could chase them down from their horses. But as you note in the book, something else happened as they started colliding with other tribes in the area, particularly the Apache. Their culture started changing from uh, a hunter culture to a warrior culture. How did that? What? How did that manifest itself? What do we know about that? Yes, that's a, that's a really good point. The the Comanche, the 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 incredibly warlike, and uh, it would you know you'd have to look to something like Sparta, you know, a, a culture that was built on war, where social status came from war, where everything was kind of oriented that way. It came from a fairly long war against the Apaches that amounted in the end almost to a genocide. The uh, Comanches were sweeping south from Wyoming, what is now Wyoming, into the Southern Plains, which as you said, was think of Eastern Colorado, Eastern New Mexico, Western Kansas, Western Oklahoma, Western Texas, the Southern Plains. This is where the Comanches are moving toward. There's ground occupied by Apaches. And uh, you have this long war that's very bitter and mostly unrecorded and very, very brutal that the Apaches lose. And eventually, you know, by the time you see, you know, Geronimo running around the borderlands of Mexico, that, that's kind of where the Apaches eventually ended up, down along a strip along the borderlands. But what's interesting about this, getting back to your original question, is, you know, and the Spanish, by, by, oh, before I get to that, the Spanish, by the way, see this in flashes. And this, the, the Apaches are the Spanish, the Spanish had this kind of capital up in Santa Fe, what is now, what is now New Mexico. And they see this strange thing happening. Their enemies, their great implacable enemies, the Apaches, are, are going away. Something's going on. They don't quite know what it is. Something's happening to their enemies. At some point, they realize what's happening to their enemies. They're losing a war to the Comanches. But what's happening to the Comanches, so the Apaches are being driven south. But what's happening to the Comanches is because of this long war, it reorders their culture, as you say. It's not just a. It, it is. It is now a culture of war. It is now a culture, be, particularly because they're so good at it. They work at it. They get better at it. They can. They can subjugate other tribes, which they do. They can drive tribes off their hunting grounds, which they do. They can nearly commit genocide on the Apaches, which they do. And so you have this kind of amazing cultural shift inside the Comanche nation. And so by the time you know the first kind of Anglo-Europeans heading west see them in Texas in 1832 or 1834. It's this unbelievably unified kind of military, militaristic tribe that controls a 250,000 square mile empire with 20 vassal tribes. And I mean, it's 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 a it's not an empire like Rome, but it's a plains empire, and it's built on their martial ability. So it completely changed them, and it turned them from, I guess, if you look at them. Originally, kind of a bunch of nomadic Stone Age, you know, hunter gatherers into this kind of magnificent mounted war machine. 
And how did, so you mentioned Sparta, you know, and Sparta is known for uh, its uh, agoge, like how they raise their boys to become warriors. Uh, the Comanches had something similar. Like they had sort of a, a training for the, that starts very young, like as young as three for their boys to become these great cavalrymen, these great warriors of the plains. They were indeed, indeed that is true. And they were very, uh, it was, it, it, as the culture evolved, it, it, the boys had to do really two things and really really only two things. And the women had to do everything else. And the two things were hunt and fight. And yes, as, as, they, as, the, as the culture changed and as the, their abilities with um, the, the bow and arrow, the abilities with the horse became more sophisticated, these rituals of passage as you were a kid, you, you know, when you were first turned out to hunt, you know, small game and then later larger game and, and, uh, and but, but particularly taught to ride. And the thing that the, the power, I mean, the Comanche power came from certainly their their ability to fight, you know, with your hands and with with the planes, lances, and with bows and things like that. But but it also came, and it primarily came from the horse. And so, what was trained as much as anything, or more than anything, was was horsemanship. They were just phenomenal horsemen, and to the point where you where the Tales told about them are, are may scarcely believable even today. I mean, you know what they could do on a horse. Uh, it was part of that big cultural change. Yeah, there are things like you know they would hide, like they'd shoot a bow and arrow from underneath the horse of a the neck of the horse, right, while it's still galloping. White men couldn't couldn't believe that one. Yeah. And the other thing they could do is they could they could discharge arrows at a, at a rate. You know, that it, was, it just defies imagination. I mean, it, it is literally, I'm snapping my fingers now like that. And if you don't believe me, go to this website where this guy, Lars Anderson, he'll show you. They, there's no quiver involved. It's a way of holding the, the arrows. Anyway, they all the things that they could do from particularly shooting, but also just riding, you know, that trick that you're talking about where you loop down a, a leather loop over the saddle, over the very minimal, minimal Spanish saddle. And uh, they would hang over the, the, the neck of the horse, which would, of course, conceal them from their enemies and also enable them to discharge arrows. But with such force that they, you know, they go through the head of a buffalo. So very, very deadly. And as I say, when the white men first saw them, they couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. And, and the skills with horses applied to, you know, everything, breaking horses. I mean, nope, they, they watched them break these horses and they never seen anything. The white men had never seen anything like it before. You know, the Comanches would trail a horse or a couple of horses and they would just trail the horse. And every time the horse got near and you couldn't catch the horse, of course, because the horse was wild. But every time the horse got near water, they would kind of bother the horse. It's the same way a a wolf brings down a a moose. And and so this would go on for a couple of days. And eventually the horse was just completely, you know, foaming at the mouth and and dying of thirst. And there were various techniques and ways this happened, but at one point the Comanche warrior would go and literally put his cup, his hands over the the, the nozzle the muzzle of the horse and blow into its nostrils, and, and suddenly the horse goes from this wild thing to being immediately gentled. And, and anyway, there were thing, all these stories that people had told about the Comanches that no one had, not white men had never seen before. Anyway, no you've got to be careful saying no one. Right. White men had never seen them before. Well. Speaking of something that uh, flummoxed Europeans when they first encounter the Comanches and going on this idea of their the warrior culture of the Comanches, they had a specific type of warfare, a style of warfare what, that when the Europeans first encountered to the Spanish, like it just it like they they couldn't stop it. They there was they had no, they'd never seen it before, and it threw them for a loop. For one thing, I mean, the white men always insisted on this kind of Napoleonic confrontation, you know, where you would march out and, and there you were in your in your in your ranks, you know, you would uh, you would take your regiment and it would be standing in its ranks two or three deep in the regiment and then they would line up and a ready aim fire. Right. This was a, this is not this is not the Comanches would never take that fight. They would never get near anything like that. They would never fight you like that. They would they would not obey all of the rules of white men's war, which in those days was essentially lining up two regiments against each other and firing at each other from a distance of about 100 yards away. And they wouldn't play that way. They, they were all about stealth. They were all about, they moved making cold camps so there was no fire. They swam their horses through frozen rivers that you, that you wouldn't think you could cross. I mean, they, they, they attacked by night. They, they gave no quarter, which is another thing that 
the white men weren't really used to. And but especially, I think that you know this idea of completely mobile warfare. Comanches were were mobile. They they didn't they you know a dragoon is a is a thing what characterized a lot of the troops in Spain is something that a dragoon is a type of soldier who. Uh, usually he- pretty heavily mounted, heavily armed and heavily mounted. He rides the horse to the place of the fight, gets off the horse and fights. It's like driving a car to the battle, except it's a horse. Comanches were entirely mounted and fought mounted and did everything mounted. And and it was the thing that distinguished them really from everybody else. It was the complete oneness with the horse. And and it was, I, I think as much as anything, again, I keep coming back to the horse, but the, you know, the, as much as anything, it was the it was the unity of warrior and horse that made the difference. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. 
Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Yeah, going back to that idea you said about how the Comanches were very similar to the Spartans. One thing, and I, I as I was reading this book, your book, I was like, that's exactly right. So you know, training to be a warrior since, as a sense of little boy, same thing in the Spartans. The the Spartans also loved to gamble. The Comanches men also loved to gamble. Right, loved to gamble. Uh, the Spartan men didn't do anything except for train for war, hunt. They didn't do anything else like that same thing with comanche same deal yeah so i I thought as i was reading i thought that was really interesting it's all it's very it's very similar it's it's uh and 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 in both places your your social status was entirely based on war okay that's where how many horses you had how many wives whatever it was but those things came from performance in war yeah, for the Spartans, it would have been like uh, the trophies you brought home, shields, armor that you brought home from your, your conquered. Well, another part of Comanche warfare uh, is that I... Th- okay, th- I'll tell you how I found your book. So I've, I'm a big Lonesome Dove fan. Uh-huh. And I've read, I've read the original novel like four times, named my kid Gus after Gus McRae. <laughs> and this year, I finally decided I'm going to read the other novels in the series because you know, McMurtry wrote Dead Man's Walk, Comanche Moon, which prequels. And I was reading Comanche Moon and Dead Man's Walk, and they're describing the torture that the Comanches did. And I was like, ah, McMurtry, he's got to be doing, doing some like, artistic license. It didn't happen like this. And then I, I, so I started researching, and I found your book, and then I learned, yeah, the Comanches were like experts at torture. What was going on there? Yeah, so one of the things you have to come to terms with if you're a historian writing about Native Americans, and this isn't just confined to uh, the plains, is is the practice of mistreating or torturing captives. And it is it is all over America, North America. Uh, it is, I don't know much about the tribes south of the Rio Grande, say, but I do know about the ones north. And they were, it was part of the culture. And uh, certainly in the plains Indians it was. And uh and it was it was pretty simple. So let's let's just go back for a moment to the time before the white men came. So you would have a you know Indian tribes that pretty much fought each other all the time. There was a culture of raiding, and the and the raid always produced a counter raid, and then a counter counter raid, and then there were vengeance raids, and this kind of went on. And the code was pretty similar, and, and I, I don't the, the Comanche certainly had it, but so did the. We'll, we'll just look at the Plains Indians for the moment. The rest of the Plains Indians did too. And what that said was, if you captured a baby, you just killed the baby. The baby's useless and an annoyance, and you can't take it on the road, so to speak. Young children might be killed, or they might be spared. The, the Comanches, in particular, had trouble kind of keeping their numbers up, so they took captives, and they were very welcoming. All kinds of captives, captives from Utes and Apaches and and Navajos and people from Mexico and and you know German Americans. I mean, they would take whoever they could get, and usually those people were in the those the, the captives that children captives that they allowed to live would be in the you know eight or nine, ten, eleven, maybe that range. So there, there's a lot of famous ones, and I write about them. Then you have, let's say, a teenage girl or a 17-year-old girl would be made a, a slave, probably a sex slave, as well as a slave of labor, uh, hard labor forever. And then you had the, 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 the warriors in the tribe. They would be killed. They would be, if they were captured alive, they would be tortured either slowly or quickly. And that all depended on how much time the winning tribe had or the, the tribe that had them had. And so you had this idea of just absolutely crazy mistreatment by the standards of that kind of enlightened culture of the Renaissance and, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition and all this, I, this, I, this culture that has this, these ideas of, of absolute good and evil, which the Indians don't have. So, so suddenly this culture, in Texas anyway, from this Anglo-European culture arrives on the frontier and looks at babies being killed and pregnant women being eviscerated and, you know, the t- people being tortured to death by c- their eyelids cut off and the penis tortures and the ant tortures and the sun tortures and all the tortures that, that McMurtry writes about and that I write about. And they're just absolutely horrified. I mean, these white people are horrified as you are, as I am. The, but it took the white people to be horrified. Let's see if I can explain that. So, the 
there was, there was a, if you will, a golden rule, like it was a backwards kind of golden rule, but it was still a golden rule. It was you would expect your en- you would you'd try to treat your enemies the way that you might expect to be treated. And all of the Native Americans out there, if you took Navajos and Comanches, for example, the uh, warriors had exactly the same expectations of what was going to happen. The women with children had exactly the same expectations. In other words, if their child, if their baby was taken, the baby would be killed. If their tribe took a baby from another tribe, they would kill the baby. There was a kind of a, there was a stasis. There was a kind of a stasis of expectation, I guess. There was a, it was an interesting moment in history because you have a culture of raid and counter raid. And we're talking about just Indians now before the whites, white men gets there. And all this stuff that just curdles the white man's stomach going on, except that it didn't bother the Indians. Not only that, but you have the culture of raid and counter raid and torture, but also you had this kind of in, well, pretty much infinitely renewable and sustainable food source, the buffalo. So there was this kind. If you look at say late, let's say late 18th century, early 19th century on the plains, this is a totally sustainable society. They understand the ground rules that each other lives by. They got plenty of food, and everything's fine. Now you wouldn't think it was so fine if you if you got caught and had your eyelids. Yeah, I mean, whatever, I won't go on. But that's what it was. White men arrived, oh, the horror, the shock. And lo and behold, the white people learned from them too. And they, you know, uh, when, when the Texas Rangers were said to give no quarter, well, that was true, they didn't give quarter. And not giving quarter, when you think about it, is if someone's attacking a village with men, women, and children in it, it's not a very pretty thing. So it happened to both sides. But it is an interesting thing as a historian, I think, as anyone who reads about it, too, you have to come to terms with this. This is what they did. And it's a fact. And they did it all over North America. And not only that, but, uh, you know, the white people learned pretty quickly about scalping and torture themselves and often employed it just as liberally as the Native Americans did. It's a very kind of touchy and difficult thing to, to come to terms with. It is because I think in America, I think you note this in the book. In America, at least, we have that very uh, Rousseau idea of the the noble savage, you know, peaceful, etc. But you know, as you said, it is what it is. It, it, that's what that's how it happened. Um, we'll talk about how warfare, how Anglo's changed their their manner of war here in a bit with the Texas Rangers. But to note, because of the style of warfare the Comanches had, they were able. And also, another thing that's interesting about the Comanches, unlike a lot of other tribes, say like back east or the Cherokees or the Choctaws, their political organization, there really wasn't a single chief for the entire Comanche tribe. There, it was more fluid and more more flat. It was, and white men never understood that. They Comanches were organized. A lot of Plains tribes were, but Comanches were organized in bands, and. Uh, it was entirely, uh, if you looked at it as a management chart, it's a hor- it's completely horizontal management chart. And you would have, within the bands, you would have a, you know, a, a civil chief and a war chief technically. But even then, uh, so not only was there not one big head guy, and the white men always thought they were making the treaty with the big head guy. And there never was any big head guy. They just they, right. they totally got that wrong. But not only was there not a big head guy, but even within the the bands Comanches had five major bands early 19th century but uh you know even within the bands it wasn't really hierarchical it wasn't like well the president and then there's the vice president the assistant vice president you know not like that so let's just say that you were the young Quanta Parker and you were 18 years old and and you wanted to get a raiding party up to go raid the oh the Utes or the Navajos or somebody you were going to raid your ability to become a, quote, war chief depended on your ability to recruit. So if you could recruit 50 people to go on a raid, well, you were the war chief. That was your party. And no one was saying, and there was no, you couldn't be overridden by somebody who said, you can't do that. You could recruit it. You could do it. So there was this, uh, again, if you look at like from, from an American sort of management point of view, it's a completely flat organizational structure, which gave it advantages in some ways and it gave it also some great disadvantages because of because of a, of, a, of a lack of you know the kind of militaristic central control that you know you would have seen in in in, in an army in, in, in an army of say the civil war or something so yeah all these things combined their style of warfare their their fluid political organization so it kind of it made it made it hard for anglos to figure out you know who's in charge and make treaties or whatever that allowed the Comanches to fend off the Spanish Empire 
which again, like conquered the Incans, the, the Aztecs, these great empires in South America and Mexico. The Comanches were able to hold these guys off for a hun- over a hundred years and white people off in general until the Americans started arriving in Texas around early 1800s, right? Right. And the term that historians used for for what the Comanches were, and again, we're we're looking at this 250,000 square mile empire that, again, eastern New Mexico, eastern Colorado, western Texas, western Kansas, western Oklahoma, that chunk of land there. It was so powerful that it, it essentially stopped the, or not essentially, it did stop the expansion of Spanish power into the new world. The Spanish thought that, that the place was theirs. They ran into first Apaches and then, then Comanches, but more particularly Comanches. You had Comanches stopping this kind of northward power surge of the Spain of the Spanish in into uh, into North America. You had the Comanches stopping this kind of westward surge of, of French power coming out of the Louisiana Territory. You had them stopping cold, the manifest destiny, you know, the, the, the movement westward driven by the idea of manifest destiny of the Americans, of the of the of the of the, of the United States of America. And so you had this kind of phenomenal influencer of history, I guess, because because nobody could do anything with this. It was one of the reasons, you know, this was the last part of North America to be settled, is you had an impenetrable block. And roughly speaking, if you look at the war that the, well, the Texans and then later the, um, the, the United States of America fought against the Comanches, this was about a 40-year war, essentially along a single line. I mean, it wasn't the line would roll west toward Wichita Falls sometimes and backward toward Dallas sometimes. But the United States never fought a war against any tribe that did anything like that. It essentially just stopped everything for a very long time. So, yes, so that it was it was the and the reason that in the title and the subtitle of my book, Empire of the Summer Moon, I say these guys are the most powerful tribe in American history. It's for that reason. They held up everything. They stopped everything, and they stopped it for a long time. Uh, eventually, they, of course, they lost. But, but the West wasn't quote one, you know, for the white man and his civilization until the, really until the Plains Indians lost it. So this brings us up nicely to where Kiwana Parker's story starts because it starts with a raid on some Texas settlers. I think in like the eighteen twenties, thereabouts, the Parker Raid. Tell us about the Parker Raid and the ramifications of it. Okay, so this is the this is the great thing about this this story is on the one hand you have the story of the Comanche tribe, which is a great dramatic story, right. great arc of the rise and fall of the Comanches. You know, they're this little tribe that a no count tribe. They get the horse, they become dominant, they sweep south, they change history. That's all big picture stuff. It's great, it's cool, but but buried in the middle of that story is the little personal family story about the family about the, the Parker family. So what happens is the. Uh, Parker family has a is, it has a has gone ahead and built its they've they've been given these great head rights from the Mexican government and one of the reasons the Mexicans are giving out all these head rights to people from the United States is because they want to settle these lands these borderlands in Texas and by settling them somehow kind of solve their Comanche problem and so yeah there's this raid on the Parker Fort. Um, and this is 1836, raid right on the Parker Fort. And they take a bunch of hostages among them, right, Cynthia and Parker. And they ride off into the plains with little old, little old nine-year-old Cynthia and Parker, blonde hair, cornflower, blue eyes, you know, the whole deal. They leave. Nothing. It, it was the most typical raid you could possibly imagine. The Indians did this to each other all the time. This just happened to be, they, I mean, they were these were white people predestinarian Baptists out of, uh, you know, Illinois by way of Virginia. And, and so this starts this incredible tale. So Cynthia, little, little, uh, little Cynthia Ann Parker, she's kidnapped. She's taken away. She becomes part of the tribe. She becomes completely assimilated into the tribe. She marries a war chief. She, she is over the years, Indian agents and various people knew where she was, but she wouldn't come in. Which shocked everybody, of course, that the the white squaw, as they called her, could could possibly, you know, want to spend her life with these with these horrible savages when she could have her wonderful, you know, uh, European culture that she came from. And so, you, the, the, this is the first part of the story. Cynthia Ann goes out and she won't come back. She has children. She marries the war chief, and she has one of her sons is named Quana. 
Then by complete accident one day, a bunch of rangers, Texas rangers and militia happened to attack a camp where she is located and they recapture her. And this is one of this, uh, the, the more amazing moments in the history of the frontier because you have this, you know, the, 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 the squaw that would never return. They refused to return to her culture. Well, now they've got her. They put her up on a, on a box in Fort Worth and everybody gawks at there and poke at her and pokes at her and, 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 and gawks at her up on this box. And when she was captured, she's captured with her daughter on a prairie flower, but her sons get away, one of whom is Quana. And so Cynthia Ann gets dragged back increasingly, you know, farther, farther and farther away from the plains, uh, increasingly into this kind of uh, Anglo-Saxon culture of her family, the Parker family, and she's ever more miserable. Meanwhile, her son, who wasn't captured, Quana, is out loose on the plains, rising to become the next, the last great chief of the Comanches and the, the man who finally surrenders what remains of his tribe after all the buffalo are killed in, in, in 1875. And so in a way you have this this 40-year war that I talked about between the Comanches and the first the Texans and then the uh, people from the United States. And essentially that begins with the kidnapping essentially of Cynthia Ann Parker and it ends with the surrender of her son, the last and greatest chief of the Comanches, Quana, in 1875. It's an amazing kind of, they're amazing bookends. Quana then goes, elects to walk the white man's way, goes on to the reservation, becomes the wealthiest and most influential Native American of the reservation, period, and on and on. And when he finally, and, and among other things, he, he attempts to and, and does locate the grave of his mother. And anyway, the story goes on, but it's one of the great tales of the frontier. And so when you write about it in my, when I write about it in my book, I get to tell that, you know, that big picture tale of the Comanche tribe, but I also get to tell this, but when you're reading that, you're never very far from the smaller story about this little girl and, uh, and her son. No. Yeah. When you mentioned that part where they, they found Cynthia Ann again, they, you know, and I guess they gave her back to her uncle and her uncle just put her up on that box and she, yeah, you said everyone was just gawking and she started crying. She was, curious. she was a curiosity. They, they, people Really, I mean, it's hard to imagine the 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 animosity that's today anyway. The animosity that people on the frontier felt for, say, Comanches. I mean, everybody knew somebody who'd been killed or tortured. Or, I mean, it was very bitter and it was very brutal. And so, to have one of them, kind of a live one, you know, right there, but she's white. I mean, it just astounded people. Yeah, and so you mentioned the Texas Rangers found them, and, and this is another part of this Comanche story and the the story of the Parkers and Kiwana. Like, this is also the story of how the Texas Rangers, uh, the mythic Texas Rangers, came to power, came to rise. Like, and what you you mentioned this earlier, one reason why the Texas Rangers were so successful at battling Comanches is that they learned to fight basically like Comanches. They imitated everything they did, and that's where the Rangers came from. And and one of the I mean, one of the things I loved about Lonesome Dove, which you and, you and I both like, is you know that the, uh, the Gus and Captain Call were were Rangers of that era. That that's who they were. That's why they were good. They they fought well. They fought Comanches and Mexicans, as everybody did in San Antonio. But yeah, I'll tell you a story. This is my favorite story that, that came out of my book, and I didn't know it before I wrote it. But so let's go to the 1830s, and we're in San Antonio now. It's just right in the edge of the Comanche frontier. And so back in those days, you were, well, actually, let's take it at, let's take 1836 and forward. 1836 is now, San Antonio is now part of Texas. And uh, what Texas would do, would, uh, were, they were very generous with what they called head rights. So they would give you head rights, would being rights to land. Basically, the land was free. And all you had to do was go out and survey that land. And then it was yours. And so people flocked to San Antonio and they would... They, they secured their head rights, which would be, uh, I don't know, call it a few hundred, 600, 800,000 acres, however many acres outside of town. And then the surveyors would go out and survey it. And the surveyors would be killed in all sorts. Talk about torture. And the Indians knew exactly what the surveyors were doing. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, the machine that steals the land. No, the machine actually stole the land. And they knew that machine stole the land the surveying equipment did so they killed them in all sorts of imaginative ways and so then the people in san antonio would send out armed guards with the 
surveyors. And, and now the death toll rose. In fact, if you see the number of the percentage of dead in 1837, I think this is in my book somewhere, 10 or 15 percent of the population of San Antonio died every year trying to do this. Comanches didn't like this. One of these surveyors was named Jack Hayes, and he was a skinny little 23-year-old guy who had this ability to keep surveyors alive long enough to, uh, you know, get the head rights and secure the land. And he, and he had, and so this group, this group kind of coalesced around him of young guns. They were all 22 years old. And they were all crazy and they were all very tough. And the Texans had names for them. They called them mounted gunmen and spies. It went, they're called spies. I don't know why. Eventually they came up with a name for them that stuck. It was Rangers. And the other, what the Rangers did was they imitated everything that the Comanches did. They cold camps. Again, you, you don't build a fire because they can find you. Uh, they they learned from their, their various scouts that they used to find the Comanches how to, you know, track bird flight, how to, you know, cross frozen rivers, how to, how to you know, particularly horse management, which really the white men didn't really understand at all. They didn't understand how you fought on horseback, how you, just how you lived with a horse in a in essentially combat situation. And so this goes on and, and and Hayes makes a name for himself. He's the man. He's got one problem though. When his mounted men, who are really good on horseback now, confront Comanches, they've got only three shots. They've got a Kentucky long rifle, bang, that's one. And they've got two single shot pistols, two, three, and that's it. And you can't reload those on, on a horseback. Can't do it. They were going up against Comanches that had the clusters of arrows in their hands that could shoot very rapidly. They were at a great kind of disadvantage in firepower. And they couldn't do anything about it. They, they won their battles largely by just being unbelievably aggressive. They would ride forward at full speed screaming and they would discharge their weapons and they would often just win by panache, you know, by just guts and with very much the, uh, very much the Captain Call character in McMurtry. Okay, so now something really interesting happens. So go to the East Coast. The East Coast, there's this guy named Samuel Colt, this little inventor guy, and he's invented this weird little weapon. It's a five-shot pistol. I think it's a 36 caliber five-shot pistol. It's got this, but what it's got is it's got a, well, five shots, but it's also got a, a cylinder that is removable so that you can shoot the five shots remove the cylinder and put another cylinder in. And this is a great, he thinks it's a great, you know, side, cavalry sidearm and everything. Well, at that moment, the United States did not have a cavalry and nobody wanted this weapon. It was a weapon, it was a clever weapon that had no use that, as far as anybody could see. Colt goes bankrupt, loses the blueprints, it's over. However, somehow the Texas Navy bought a, a crate of those things of the five shooters, the Patterson Colt five shooters. And somehow it sat in a warehouse in Galveston and somehow Jack Hayes and his rangers in San Antonio, which is about, I don't know, maybe 200 miles from there, got a hold of it, got a hold of the crate of guns. <laughs> he immediately understood what it did. Hayes immediately understood that it would equalize the thing. So you have, so now the Hayes Rangers, now they're training and training with these five shooters and they're getting really good at them. And they, in 1844, they take them out and they try them out in Sisterdale, Texas at the Battle of Walker's Creek and they win. And everything that Hayes thought would happen, would happen, you know, happened. And so here, so you had this incredible moment in history. Right then the Mexican War and, and the, the Mexican War happens People figure out that there are these crazy rangers in Texas who go everywhere mounted and they have these repeating pistols. And they now design, I mean, Samuel Colt now redesigned something. Now this is called the Walker Colt. It's this five and a half pound hand cannon that is a six shooter. And it's this, I mean, if you've ever held one, they're just, it's just, it's a thing to hold. Anyway, it's the six shooter. It changes everything. It kills more men than the Roman sword, the short sword. It it saves Colt from bankruptcy. Colt gets the military contract to make the six shooters for the Rangers who go into war in Mexico and absolutely light it up. Nobody's ever seen this kind of ability to fight. They, uh, they're used as, uh, as sort of anti-guerrilla warriors and, and nobody can stand with them. And so 
it's this it's the invention of the six shooter and it was invented in order to fight comanches by people who had adapted warfare against comanches and anyway the, it's there's there's lots of stories like that that's my probably my favorite from the book just because you know it reaches into capitalism in the east coast and samuel colt who by the way becomes the richest man in america because of this and um on and on and on it's a great story and and you were asking earlier about why people don't know about this i mean take somebody like jack hayes i mean he should be easily as famous as another guy running around San Antonio in those same years named Davy Crockett. And then I don't know why he isn't, frankly. Yeah. So going back to Quanta Parker, uh, he's, he kind of rose to power as a war chief as the Comanches were dwindling in power. And that they were dwindling because, okay, the Rangers figured out how to fight them. But the big reason the Buffalo were being exterminated, this is when, again, talking about that, that cross-section of capitalism intersecting with the frontier, this is when the Buffalo Hunter came to power and they were just wiping out the Buffalo. And that was their food source. So I think what led Quanta to you know finally decide because I think a lot of these Plains tribes, they, they fought going on the reservation because they knew as soon as that happened, their way of life would be over. They would no longer be the people or the Comanches. They were going to have to, to grow bean, beans and right, corn. Exactly. So they, they fought it to the end. But why did Quana, this great war chief who, who was an adept warrior, why did he decide just to finally surrender and head over to Fort Sill? Well, to go back to something you said a minute ago, I mean, the, <clears throat> what really what killed most of the Indians off was proximity to the white man and white man's diseases. The great the great percentages of, of the Indian tribes uh, died, including Comanches, from cholera and white man's diseases. And so you had this wave of, of well, starting, I, I guess, in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. I mean, it was just, I mean, half an entire tribe would be taken out, or two-thirds of an entire tribe. And, and the problem was that the closer you were to the, to the white man's frontier, the more there was interaction with white men and trade and so forth, and, and the more the diseases spread. Quanta Parker happened to be part of a band that lived way out in West Texas, if you've ever been to Amarillo, out there, in the panhandle. And they were, his band, the Quahatis, were were remote, I guess. They were the most remote band from whatever white frontier you were looking at. One of, and one of the reasons they were able to uh, avoid disease is that they did not themselves go and interact. They didn't, when, so when, when they wanted to trade with Santa Fe, with the Spanish and the, the Mexicans in Santa Fe, they would trade through the intermediaries, these intermediaries called Comancheros. And so basically they, out on the plains there, they were, they were disease-free and therefore their numbers stayed up. This was Qantas people. And so what happened by, it's kind of a cascading effect. The, the Civil War came and both North and South governments turned their attentions elsewhere and allowed the, the frontier to kind of fester. But after the war was over, you know, the, the people in charge in Washington pretty soon decided that they were going to put a stop to this. And uh, in the 1870s, you have the first of these big expeditions being sent out. We're, okay, we're now going to end this. We're going to end this nonsense. How could this tribe with 5,000 people in it or whatever, 5,000 warriors, be holding up the entire advance of you know, Western civilization, which is the way it was seen? And so you have this, not only is it a moment when you have military forces now being unleashed against Quana and his band and his out out in the panhandle out of that in west texas but you also have the phenomenon you were talking about which is the deliberate tolerance by washington by the military establishment in particular of the wholesale killing of all the buffalo in the plains and for a plains indian the buffalo was everything the buffalo was the food the buffalo were the the clothing the lodging the weapons the food it, it was it, it was an entire way of life Everything came from the buffalo. Without the buffalo, a Plains Indian wasn't really a Plains Indian. And so you have a couple of, as I said, a couple of things going on. You have the military now, you know, Quanah and his guys have Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, and Philip Sheridan's full attention. And these are some serious warriors who beat the South in the Civil War. And they have their full attention. You have a military campaign being run against them. You have all of their buffalo being slaughtered. And at the end of this kind of last great gasp of all this, the Red River War, it's pretty much all over for the Plains Indians. Now, Quanna himself was, he was never captured. He never lost a battle to the white men. He was out there. He, he stayed out. He could have stayed out really possibly as long as he wanted to. But at some point he realized, 
that primarily all of the food source was dead. He realized that all the buffalo were dead. He realized that the lifestyle was, was going to have to change. So in 1875, he and the last of kind of the starving Comanches, uh, you know, who, who are now eating prairie dogs, if they can get them, they come in. There really is no choice. They don't want to go farm beans and corns, and they never did. And when they were given land to do so, they sublet it to white farmers. They never would do it anyway. They were never going to to be anything but who they were, which was hunters uh, of, of bison or buffalo on the plains. So Quana essentially was was the last gasp of that. He was the last hold, or one of the last holdouts, the last Comanche holdout. And when he came in, he acknowledged that that if they were going to come into a reservation somewhere, they were going to have to change their ways. And he did. I mean, I, I think a lot of Native Americans who, were, who went to the reservation, sort of this uh, stereotype of them becoming very sullen and, you know, sort of not working and just sort of just living off the, the things they get from the, the government. But Kwana, he became incredibly industrious, incredibly, I mean, he adapted to the white man's way to the point where he, as you said earlier, gained an incredible amount of power, a great amount of wealth. And he also became a celebrity during the late 19th century, early 20th century. He did. He did this amazing transformation from being one of the most feared warriors of his era. And he did things, I mean, he never talked about what he did, but of course, because he was a Comanche, we sort of know what he did. And it was, he was, it was brutal and it was, he was a young man, but he was a, he was a true Comanche Plains warrior. And when he had his vision and he went in, he decided he was, he was going to walk the white man's walk. And he did. And one of the interesting things that he, about that was his, he realized that cattle and land was the sort of the name of the game. And he played it uh, just as well as anyone ever did, certainly as well as any white man did. I mean, he outfoxed the white man at his little cattle leasing schemes. He was absolutely magnificent testifying for the Jerome Commission in Washington about, uh, about Comanche land allotments. He was a true leader of his tribe, and he was he, he was the leader of his tribe from the time that he uh, surrendered in 1875 till his death in 1911. But yeah, he became wealthy, built this giant house out on the plains, or got his sorry got his uh, ca- he, he tried to get the U.S. government to build it for him, of course, but they wouldn't. He got his cattlemen friends to build it for him. This magnificent place called Star House out out on the plains. That if you had, if you had come if you had walked into Star House since say eighteen ninety, you just wouldn't have believed what you were looking at. He had well, he had six wives in the house. He had well, he had what twenty or twenty one children, nineteen of whom survived to adulthood. He had children who were sorry, the children married white people. He had an adopted white son living with him. He had like a French. I'm sorry, a Russian Mexican cook in there. He would have, you know, Geronimo and you and and army generals like Nelson Crook to dinner in the house. Around the house at any given moment, there you would see lodges, teepees, as many as eighty or ninety of them. Comanche tribe members who would come in to get a loan or a gift or money or to be healed because Kwana founded the Native American Church with its peyote ritual, you know, to get buried. I mean, this world of the this reservation world revolved around him. And, uh, and as you said earlier, it, it, would, it would not be accurate to say that most Comanches were willing to follow him and, and to follow his path. They mostly, they simply didn't want it to be what, what the American military establishment and political establishment wanted them to be, which was bean farmers. They never wanted to do that. And they never did that. And speaking of other people you might see at his star house, Teddy Roosevelt, President Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. He made a visit down to Kwana. He, he was there once. And it, it's this great, it's still sitting up there. It's falling down now. It's just, it's just kind of, it's a true shame that star house has gone to, gone to seed up there in Cache, Oklahoma. But, uh, one of the great thrills for me of writing the book was going up there and discovering it, you know, sitting in the in the room where that famous picture of Cynthia Ann um, sat on Quana's wall, wall and uh, into the dining room where where Geronimo had dinner with him and so forth. So, Sam, as you said, this this story, it's a big story, an epic story of the American West, the, the closing of the frontier. But it's also had these these small stories of of families, of individuals. I mean, after you have, after someone reads this book, what do you hope they walk away with after finishing it? I think what I, I didn't really, when I was writing it, I didn't, I didn't have a, 
I didn't have an agenda. I wasn't trying to do anything in particular except to present a balanced view of the frontier. And, and but it was interesting because I was uh, I wrote the book and I started to get these questions that were, do you know who Don Imus is? Yeah. Okay, so I'm being interviewed by Imus. And I'm in some studio in Dallas and uh, Imus loved the book. And when it came out, he jumped on and I'm interviewing him. I'm in some studio in Dallas wearing headphones and he goes up. He goes, Sam, uh, when you wrote this book, did you have to stop and take some a couple deep breaths before you wrote a complete revisionist history of Native American Native Americans? And I and then I go, like, what are you talking about? I, I honestly didn't know what he meant. Okay, a thousand similar questions later, I now know what he was talking about. And what he was talking about was that you had all these kind of myths and counter myths that were flying around in, in this country anyway, in the 20th century. You had this kind of idea that early on that the, that the army, and you, and you can see this in Hollywood totally, it's the army is all good. It's the cavalry coming in. It's right. It's the horrible mean Indians, right? And that was that idea that Indians are bad. And then you, then you had a complete kind of snapback from that. And, and the, the poster book for which was Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which is that the Indians are, they're, right, they're, they're noble, gentle people that we just steamrolled over and broke all our treaties and took their lands and destroyed them, all of which is true, by the way. And But th- there was that particular side, and, and that the, the, the Bury My Heart side of the myth, or the Bury My Heart myth, had kind of neglected this idea that Indians were powerful in their own right, cruel in their own right, powerful, cruel, that they... They, you know, they were, they had, the Comanches were, were nobody's fool and certainly didn't get rolled over by anybody. They put up a 40 year fight again. Uh, well, they, 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 they drove the Spanish out of the new world and they put up a 40 year fight against the Texans and, and the Americans. But it was that sense, I guess that, so, and I approached it just as a, I'm a, I'm a reporter. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been, I was a magazine writer and a newspaper writer. I just try to, you know, you try to interview both sides, you know, and I mean, you come to conclusions, but you try to be balanced in your coverage. And that's that's all I was. I was trying to be balanced. So if I talk about Comanches torturing babies, and I also talk about what the Rangers did to Indians, which was um, just as horrifying. Not because I was trying to make an ideological point with it, but because it was true. But because, because the, 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 uh, the borderlands, the, the frontier were an extremely violent and brutal place, and the violence came from both sides. And you had a culture of kind of vengeance that comes out of it. And if you've ever seen this, the movie, The Searchers, and the character of John Wayne, it's just so brilliant. It's this guy who embodies the bitterness of the frontier and what it's like to, you know, have to lose people. Both sides had that. And so I guess I, I, I guess what I would like readers to feel, if anything, and this is related to what I was just saying, is that I, as a reporter, I, I was balanced. I was sympathetic to both sides because, you know, and were the Comanches noble? Yes, they were. They fantastic. Uh, they had a fantastic culture. They're family oriented. I mean, they were also, you can go, go on about that. And they were also warriors of a very high order who were exceptionally cruel when it came to uh, hostages. So, and captives. I guess that I guess that's what I would want people to know is that it was it, it wasn't both myths are are incomplete I guess. No, yeah, that's what I took away. Human it's basically it reiterated the point that human beings, all human beings are complex, messy creatures. And uh and yeah, you could, I as I read this I was like I was I was horrified by both what the the Rangers and the Comanches did, but also inspired by both. I was sad, you know, what happened with the Comanches. Then just seeing that, like it was a it was a people that ended basically. Yeah, that that story you told at the end where Quanah goes on one last buffalo hunt. Oh, and, isn't that sad? Just- and they and there's nothing there, and that's I think they realized it's over. And like I was just like, this is that's just devastating. So yeah, it's a it's a really great book. Sam Gwynn, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you too, Brad. So we'll, maybe we'll talk again about the Civil War someday or something. No, yeah, you got that book Rebel Yell about Stonewall yeah. Jackson. And it's on my to-read list, so we're going to make that happen. All right. My guest today was Sam Gwynn. He's the author of the book, Empire of the Summer Moon. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about Sam's work at scgwynn.com or check out our show notes at aom.is slash Comanches, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. 
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there. And we've got thousands of articles we've written over the years about basically everything, personal finance, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness to get one month free of Stitcher Premium. Once you signed up, download the Stitcher app on iOS or Android, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast. Again, stitcherpremium.com, promo code manliness. And if you enjoy the show and you've got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only to listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Oh,